four kids, and uh, approximately a million years ago, when I was 22, I had a small group of high school students. I was young, they were young, everybody was young, but we had a lot of fun together. We just have ridiculous stories, uh, shared memories, the stuff of the, the first time we tried to go down to Dave and Buster's and couldn't actually get in. The second time we tried to go down to Dave and Buster's and couldn't actually get in. Uh, just so many different things have happened with us. And we've got a lot of history. I've known them for a long time. They know me very well. Frustratingly well, to be honest. Like they know me very well. To explain what I mean, I like weird music. And they know that like I like you know, different stuff. I like st kind of unknown stuff. I like you know, stuff like that. And so uh, we'd be, I've been in the car with, with one of them on multiple occasions and I'll say, hey, have you ever heard this song? And I'll play it for him. And I'll know intellectually that they're messing with me. Like, I'll know that Chris will just be messing with me when he's like, oh, yeah, no, I love that song. You're only just hearing about that now? I can't believe it. I'll know in my head he's just trying to mess with me. And I still can't stop myself from being like, what? How is it possible? How have you heard this? Because they just know that about me. I was at a, one of their weddings one time and I got up to, uh, to go get a drink. And uh, one of them, when I left, said to the rest of the table to make fun of me, they're like, what's he going up there to say? Uh, excuse me, do you have anything that tastes like Skittles? <laughs> sure enough, I come back with a, a, ha a third orange juice, a third cranberry juice, a third Sprite. And it's like, I can't even get upset. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know me. That's like dead on accurate. Like they, they know me well. I got to do two of their weddings. I was, I had a part in a third one and then I was a groomsman in a fourth. Like, I love these guys. Now they're adults and married and have kids and are mostly responsible members of society. <laughs> and our relationship continues. I know them well. They know me well. We've shared life together and I continually consider it a privilege that we are still close. So Jimmy, Chris, Sean, Matt, if you're watching this, love you guys. That's what community is. That's a picture of what community is. Of knowing and being known, of having that shared experience, of having that shared history. And we're going to dig into that idea as we continue our three relationships series by looking at the relationship with the church and specifically the rhythm of community. Right? The rhythm of community. Community is an important thing. It's an important thing. And it's rooted in this idea that everybody wants to belong. Everybody wants to belong. And listen, that's not just a pastor talking. That's secular psychology talking as well. We have a need to belong, to be a part of something, to find our place in something. But the problem is that's not always easy. There's really competing values for us. For those of us at this part of the world, at this time, at this place, there's problems. For us, there's competing values. One of the things that we value as Americans, as, as Americans who live in the Northeast at this time, is this value of independence, of self-reliance, right? Like, I don't need others. Like, I, I got it. Like, I, I'm myself. Like, I'm my own person. Like, and I kind of do my own thing. Like, we kind of can believe that lie. And so that idea of self-reliance, of autonomy, of independence is, is at odds with community. Everybody wants to belong, but nobody wants to go first. I've often heard it, being a part of a church for a long time, that people leave because they didn't feel connected. And what often comes up is people are fearful of stepping out or fearful of reaching out. And that's why our, our obligation as a church is to be as, as warm and welcoming as we can, to be as sticky as possible, to make it hard for people to leave. Because we all know what it's like to be new, 
we forget what it's like to be new, right? Because we're so desperate to kind of be part of something that once we're inside, we forget what it was like to be outside. But we want to belong and be part of something. And the harsh truth about community is it's going to take work. Community is going to take work. It's not something that just naturally happens. It can be hard for us to approach that because we face things like we don't, we don't want to be uncomfortable, right? Community is outside of my natural rhythm. It's outside of my natural routine, right? It's a new thing, and I just kind of like comfort. We kind of seek the equilibrium of comfort. Community can be too much work. Or we don't want to be vulnerable, right? Well, why would I want to be known by others? And men, we got to be honest, I'm talking to you for a minute, we are just a whole other kind of worms when it comes to that. Because I think we want to be known the same way, but for, we, there's somehow this lie has been believed that it's like, well, but men can't want that. Surely men can't talk about their life and feelings. Those things are terrible. I'd rather have no bacon for the rest of my life than talk about that. <laughs> but we have a need in us to matter to others, to, to belong somewhere, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Sometimes fear gets in the way. All right, I won't know anyone there. Insecurity comes into play. I have nothing to offer. What if people found out the truth about me? What will people think? And a barrier we're dealing uniquely right now culturally is that you can't have community without agreeing on everything. And to that I say, that is utter crazy talk. Who in your life do you agree about everything with? Who? Nobody. Because even if you agree on a thousand things, they like chunky peanut butter and you know that is monstrous and you like smooth. Like nobody agrees on everything. It's work to be part of community, but it's work that is worth it. It's work that's worth it. I read a study that found kids learn better when they learn to teach someone else than they learn to take a test. Listen to that again. Kids learn better when they learn something with the explicit purpose of teaching it to someone else, then they learn just to take a test. Why? There's a, that idea of community is baked into us. God's created us to exist in community. He's created us to exist with others that way because God himself exists in community. We can't say community is not a good thing. God is in community. God exists in this Trinitarian sense of community that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you just said Trinitarian, what? For, I apologize. Just forget I said that. Just move on. But God exists. God in three persons. God exists in community in that relationship with himself. And he invites us into relationship with him. We want to belong because God created us that way. We want to matter because God created us that way. We need other people. We need those relationships because God created us that way. And if you don't believe me, have you ever seen the movie Castaway? What's one of the first things he did? He made his own community. That's right, Wilson. He made a volleyball with a face on it that he talked to. He needed community even in isolation. Technology and culture can isolate us, can keep us apart. We, can, we want connection and yet we settle for less. We settle for this imperfect picture. And sometimes we get into community because of what we get out of it. And don't think about what we give. And sometimes we get in for what we can give, but don't think about we can take anything out of it. But God has a different idea when it comes to community. So we're going to dig into Mark chapter 2 and talk about community. Community. 
and the destruction of personal property. If you turn uh, in your Bible to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, we're going to look at verse, uh, this story 1, verse 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2. I love this story. We've been going through the book of Mark in the context of three relationships, and this is a fun little, this is a fun little nugget. And I want to tell you up front, this is not a story about community. Jesus is not talking about community. But Josh, you're thinking, why, why teach on this? Because community is an incredibly important part of this story. So read along with me. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people, that, uh, that he, sorry, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat that the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say that to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, take your mat, Get up, take up your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like that. There's two groups that we're going to kind of look through and really dig into what community looks like. We see two groups of people. There's the crowd, and there's this community. Crowds come and gather around a common interest or curiosity, but crowds don't ask a lot of you. You can leave when you want. You can hang around the edges. You can dangle your feet without really jumping in. No, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, think of the Eagles game today. There's going to be a lot of people there in the crowd, and that's, that's going to be a fun thing. You feel like you're a part of something, but you, while you are to an extent, you aren't known for who you are. You're seen as a part of a whole, not as an individual. Community is different. Community is a place where we can know others and be known. Where we can know others and be known. And the difference between a crowd and a community is the commitment level of each group. The level of investment. And so we're going to talk about community, but I want you to think about community more like a verb and less like a noun. Community, less of something that you join and more of something that you do or something that you are. And the first thing as we unpack the story that we're going to look at is the idea of an engaged community. An engaged community. Because look at this story. What happens? All right, Jesus has performed miracles. He heals the leper in Mark chapter 1. He says, don't tell anybody. And of course, he tells everybody right away. And so Jesus goes to Capernaum and he's trying to kind of spend some time by himself, but people hear about it and they gather in such large numbers at this place that it says there's no room left, not even outside the door. They just flood his house, this house where he's at. There's so many people there. Because I think because they want to see him do something amazing, right? They're like, all right, let's see what you got, man. I heard some good stuff. What trick you got next? They want to see, but Jesus instead sits and, and he teaches them. He teaches them about God preaches the word to them. And verse three tells us that some men came bringing to, to Jesus a paralyzed man. 
they had to carry him. He couldn't make it on his own. They had to literally carry him. They had to bring him there. This is not something that he could have seen. This is not or something he could have just done. He didn't kind of roll himself there. They had to carry him there. And that tells us a lot about them. It tells us a lot about them. It tells us that they're engaged in each other's lives. They showed up for their friend. They cared about him. They stepped up for him. They wanted him to get to experience this. They wanted him to to hopefully be healed because Jesus had been doing this stuff. They brought him there. They made it possible. They were part of this guy's life. And this guy was engaged with them as well. He had to trust them, right? He had to trust that they would take care of him. He had to trust that they were looking out for his best interests. They were engaged in each other's lives. It shows us this picture that community offers you something. These friends did for this paralyzed man something he could not do for himself. They literally physically brought him to Jesus. But community asks something of us as well. That was not convenient. That was not easy. But the guys cared about their friend and they were invested because they'd shared this relationship and they shared their lives. They, they wanted to see him experience this. The cost was worth it to them. They were engaged. They knew his need. They knew how he felt. They looked to meet it. They, they stepped up for him. That's what community looks like. We engage with each other. We can't do life on our own. Sometimes we convince ourselves we can, like the guy driving on the highway with a mattress on top, holding it down with one arm, where he's like, I got this. Spoiler alert, you do not got this. We convince ourselves we can do it, but we can't. We need help. Eliud Kipchoge is a world-class runner, world-class runner. 2017, he participated in a thing with Nike called Breaking Two. They were trying to run the first sub-two-hour marathon, which is just just the most mind-blowing number I've ever heard in my life. My goal when I had to run the mile in high school was just to get under 10 minutes. 9.58, I'd have been thrilled with that. What's the least amount of sweating I can do while still passing? And these guys are going, I'm going to run 26.1 miles in uh, under two hours. That's insane. All right, so they finished at two hours and 25 seconds and and being disappointed that they didn't do it, he tried it again, October 12th, 2019, as part of this Ineos 159 challenge. And he did it. He successfully ran the first two-hour marathon with a time of 159.40.2. Sweet goodness, that's incredible. But here's the thing, this guy is not just the greatest marathoner in the world, though he probably is. He didn't just decide, I'm going to do it, because if he did, he just would have done it. No, there was a whole team around him. In fact, this effort doesn't actually count as a new world record, according to the international track body, because of the setup, right? This wasn't just a race for everybody to run. It was an event just for him. He was handed fluids by his support team throughout. The, The run had a pace car and included rotating teams of other runners pacing him in formation to reduce wind resistance and maximize efficiency. What's my point in saying that? He couldn't do that alone. He had a lot of help. I mean, if I had all that and someone carrying me, I could have done that too. (laughs) 
We need people with us. We need people engaged with us. Community can't be community without us engaging with each other, without us rolling up our sleeves and being involved in each other's lives. Community isn't something you join, it's something you are, it's something you do. And here at Calvary, we want to be an engaged community. The second thing that we see in this story is that it, it, there's a believing community. All right? There's a believing community. Because I left out my favorite part of the story in order to get to this. Right? What did the friends do? What did the friends do? They didn't just bring him to Jesus. It says they couldn't get him into Jesus because of the crowd. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowering him down. They literally made a way. Right? They went through and did this with their friend. And so I want to give you some context of what this means so that you really understand why this is a big deal. So I'm going to show you a picture of what a house, uh, an artist rendering of what a house uh, look, might have looked like in that time, right? Something like this, right? There's a, there's a couple things you got to know, right? This, we think of a house as like a single building, but this, think of it like a compound, right? It wasn't just one house. You kind of build on, families would live together. In fact, Jesus references this when he says, in my father's house, there's many rooms, because it's the idea that a groom would build his family's rooms onto his father's house. And when his rooms were finished, he would go and get his bride and then they would live together. And so th this was like a compound. There's a bunch of rooms to this. But then there's even another level of what's interesting is they're using the materials that they have. There's a lot of stone. There's a lot of rock around. What there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of big trees. There's a reason when they built the temple that the Israelites had to go to Lebanon to get cedars from the, the hills, from the, the slopes of, of um, Mount Hermon, these cedars of Lebanon, these massive trees to make the stuff for the temple, right? Because there aren't a ton of big trees in Israel, not because they all cut down at this point, but because la lack of persistent water source, just the nature of the, uh, the, the geography and the topography and the botany and whatever other science word I can think of. So that means that the roofs had a very unique structure, a very specific structure, right? They looked something like this. They'd have these wooden beams, right? They weren't huge because there wasn't a lot of it. And then they'd have these kind of wood sticks that were kind of supports on top of that, like a layer of thatch. And then they'd be covered with this clay as a way to seal the roof, to keep the water out, to make it watertight. And so it, the walls were stone with clay on it, almost like a plaster-like clay. And the, the roof had this on so it would keep it warm in the winter and cool in the summer. That's the house that we're talking about, right? These guys show up and they go, we're here. All right, we're bringing this guy. They get close. They're like, all right, we can't get him in. Well, we got to get him in. We can, we're not bringing him all the way here and not getting in. And I'm sure they tried to like make a way or kind of butt through, but you know how crowds can be. They're just like, what are you doing, man? We're here. You, you should have gotten here earlier. I've been camping out overnight. I don't know what your deal is. You should have been here. So they don't let him in. And so they're like, well, we're not going home. Like, we didn't come this far. We're not, we're not leaving him alone. This is our guy, man. This is our guy. We're going to step up for him. So they go up on the roof. And you know what the text doesn't say? It doesn't say, and Jesus was teaching, seating under a skylight. At least not when he started. Yeah. They start digging down through the roof. They start tearing a hole in the roof. They are jacking this guy's roof up. And while we read this story like, oh, it just happens. And suddenly a hole appears and everybody's fine. No, there's got to be yelling and screaming. What are you doing? People are trying to, but maybe people are trying to pull him down. They're like throwing stuff. Stop. This is my house. Like I'd be freaking out. Like this is a big deal. Because I can guarantee you, your homeowner's insurance policy does not cover random strangers tearing a hole in your roof to get access to the religious man that has come and sitting in your living room. 
They destroyed a guy's roof. That's incredible. They believed that something could happen, right? They believed in their friend. They believed in him enough that they wanted to see his life be better. His friend believed them because that's a big deal, right? This friend had to trust them. I don't know if they came to him and said, have you heard about this guy? But imagine, this guy's been paralyzed since birth. Imagine getting your hopes up and having them broken. This cost him something to believe, right? You show up hoping, man, I've heard he's done incredible things. Maybe he can do it for me. He's got to get his hopes up with the reality that they may be dashed, but he believed. They believed in each other. But they believed in something more. They had heard something about Jesus and they wanted to to see if maybe one of those miracles that he'd done could, could affect their friends. They were desperate to care for him. We all need that kind of community, right? To love and support each other enough, but there's even more to it. They believed in something greater they must have in order to do what they did. This isn't just belief in the power of friendship or belief in some generic hope that things could be better. This is belief that God is real and at work and that Jesus has somehow has authority on his behalf. They do not fully know who Jesus is at this point, but they know there's something special about him and they just want to get into his presence with their friend. And this guy either believed it or he believed that his friends believed it deeply and sincerely. But their faith must have been genuine for him to accept it and trust it. And we know it was because Jesus says it is, right? They dig this hole. They lower their friend in. I'm sure there's yelling and shouting. It's just utter. We, I think sometimes like everyone's sitting calmly like, oh, look at that. I think it is just utter chaos. And they get this guy down. And verse 5 tells us, when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Woo! Now that's a moment. That's a moment right there. They believed in such a profound and powerful way that the son of God identified it as as valid and meaningful and true. Son, your sins are forgiven. They were a believing community. And here at Calvary, we want to be a believing community too. Not just a community that thinks, hey, let's be nice to each other, though for the love, let's be nice to each other. But that believes that we are united around a common goal, not to just be good moral people, but to know Jesus. That's it. To know Jesus. You can be wrong about a lot of things if you're right about Jesus. We want to be a believing community. The last thing we see in this story is a transformed community. Because I love how this story goes on. And I love it. Like, that's a great story, right? You hear that, you're like, yes, all right, this, woo! It's a great moment. But man, it just keeps getting better. Because it says, now some of the teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive uh, sins but God alone? And listen, that's understandable. These are scribes who have been been trained and raised up and and tested and are uh, 
empowered by the community to be their law keepers. And so there is a, there is a, a degree of earnestness in this, right? They're not just trying to be difficult. They're going, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Old Testament tells us that only God alone can forgive sins, that the Messiah was just going to come and conquer their enemies and be an agent of God, but he didn't have the power to forgive sins. So they're like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? What's going on here? And verse 8 says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Oh, God, only God alone can forgive. And again, sometimes we read this like in a flat, sterile thing. Imagine you're sitting there and your friend walks in and you're like, she wore that. Woo! Was there no lights in her house? I mean, that like, what is that? White after Labor Day? Ugh. And imagine your friend goes, ah, yeah, it is white after Labor Day. But those are old rules. And we don't have to hold to that standard of fashion anymore. Boy, that's like all the fashion knowledge I had all at once. <laughs> that's like the limit to what I had. Imagine your friend responds to you. You'd be like, I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? I, did. I meant to just think that. Imagine someone responds to the stuff you are thinking. That is a terrifying feeling, right? <laughs> You're going, uh, what, el what else did he hear me think? Jesus knows what they're thinking and he responds to them. And he asks them, as he often does, he responds with a question. He goes, what's easier? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. And really, what he's doing here is kind of setting them up. Because, of course, in their minds, saying your sins are forgiven is easier. Why? Because how do you prove that? How do you prove that? Right, if you say you're healed, all right, well, there's a proof right there. If he doesn't get up, he's not healed. But if you say your sins are forgiven, well, I, I could say all sorts of stuff right now that you can't prove. I lowered all your cholesterol. You know, you're like, I don't know. They think, okay, well, sure, like your sins are forgiven. Like that's an easier thing to say. But what Jesus knows is that they are while not of equal importance, they are both something that only God can do. And so Jesus says to him, this is a buy one, get one free moment, guys. The guy wanted his, his legs. The guy wanted to walk, right? That's the thing he wanted. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to answer your deepest need, not your felt need, not the thing you think you want. I'm going to answer the question to the thing you desperately need. Whether you know it or not, I'm going to answer the question of the deepest thing in your life, not the convenient thing, not the thing you think you want. I'm going to answer your deepest need. I'm going to meet your deepest need right now. And as an aside, and this is for free, we need to think about God working that way. I need to think God working that way. Because when God doesn't do what I want, my first thought is you don't care. Instead of going, oh, maybe you're smarter than I am. Maybe, I don't know, you have a perspective that I can't totally see. Maybe, just maybe, you know what you're doing. And considering of the mess I've made of whatever situation I'm currently in, maybe I shouldn't be in charge. I mean, that's really the reality of it. God meets his deepest need. Not the need he wanted met, but his deepest need. But I love this. But I want you to know, I want you to know that the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite, favorite term for himself, and Mark talks about much later, later on in, in Mark, after chapter 8, it's really tied to Jesus' presence as Messiah, this, this mission that he's come to complete. 
says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Here's what he's saying. Forgiveness of sins is what matters, but I want to show you that I can do that. I'm gonna do this to prove to you that. This is the thing that matters, but I'm gonna do this to prove to you that. I'm gonna do this thing in the moment. I'm gonna do this thing so that you can believe that this bigger thing is real. I'm gonna do this momentary thing, this smaller thing, not small, but smaller thing, so that you can trust that this bigger thing is real. God ever do that for you? Prove himself, give you something something to show show up in your life in a way to, to give you a reason to trust him, to continue to lean into him so that you can trust him in the big stuff too. I just love that he says that. He's like, I'm not doing it for you. I'm gonna do this to show you. I'm gonna do this to show you. And so he says that and the guy, I love this. He got up, took up his mat and he left. I mean, that was it. Immediately immediately. I've never gone to the doctor and immediately felt better. This guy stands up and walks. Imagine what that's like. You're there watching this. These people knew him, right? Their minds are blown. There's just a collective like, what is happening? He gets up and he walks out. And in the understatement of understatements, verse 12 says, this amazed everyone. Yeah, I imagine it did. And they praise God saying, we've never seen anything like this. No, I don't imagine you have. Because not a lot of us have seen that. But that's how Jesus works here. These teachers of the law are upset. Who is this guy to claim to do what only God can do? Call it blasphemy, this flagrant disrespect from God. And frankly, little spoiler alert, the rest, of chapter, the rest of chapter two and chapter three are basically the Pharisees and the teachers of the law being frustrated with Jesus. Only one option existed for them. Jesus can't be who he says he is. Jesus claims to be able to do something that he, he couldn't. It never occurred to them that maybe he did have the authority to forgive sins, which mean he must be God. He must be God. God knows us the same way. God can read us like a book. He knows what's in our hearts and our minds. He knows us. But he moves towards us through his son to extend the same forgiveness to us that this guy experiences, the same forgiveness. The freedom to be forgiven from the brokenness of our lives, from our failures, from our shame, from our pain, restoration into a relationship with him that we were created to know and experience. It means, for, that forgiveness means we don't have to try and hide. And healing and forgiveness are intertwined here because healing is a perfect picture of forgiveness. Sin leaves wounds. Forgiveness heals them. Sin leaves wounds. Jesus heals them, Right? Jesus forgives them, this guy, this man sins, and then to prove he can do it, he heals him as well. I just love that powerful moment because while we see that this guy's community, right, his friends, that's a picture of what God created us to experience, right? But it's an incomplete picture because if we're just talking about being engaged and kind of believing in each other, like that's great, but anybody can do that stuff, right? It's not just 
being engaged with each other, believing in each other. It's about believing in something greater. It's about believing in that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is who he says he is, that we're invited to know him personally. We're invited into that. It's about being transformed. It's about being transformed. Jesus invites this guy who's experienced a rich community with his friends into the deepest, richest, most fulfilling community there is, the community our souls long for. In a way, Jesus does for us what the friends do for the man. Jesus tears open a barrier between us and God that we could never overcome on our own to bring us directly into his presence. We don't stand on the outside hoping to see, hoping to get in. We're brought right into God. We're brought right to him. I love the community we see with these guys, but it's an incomplete picture. It's an incomplete picture. The forgiveness of sins is our invitation into community with God. He invites us to be part of his family, to be in community with him, and to community with him. The same transformation is available to us. Maybe not physically, but absolutely emotionally and spiritually. To be renewed and made whole. Because what you notice after Jesus forgave his sins, you don't see the guy, you don't see the man complain. You don't see him going, ah, uh, excuse me, garçon, that is not what I ordered. We don't see that. I think the implication is this guy knew something had changed in him. And so whatever else happened is just gravy. It's just gravy. Several years ago, uh, Bethany and I were going through just a really hard season of life. We were fine. Just what we were going through together was hard. It was just hard. We've been in a situation where we're just feeling hurt and beat up and betrayed. And there was a lot of pain and we were really struggling. We were really struggling. We were really hurting. We were like, God, where are you in this? Like, why would you let this happen? And we were just, we we're embarrassed and ashamed and just, we just felt lonely and isolated. And this one particular day that we, we got th this bad news there's our doorbell rings in the evening. And it's some of our friends who just showed up. They just showed up, just invited themselves over. They brought food. They're like, hey, we're just here. We're here to be with you. We're just here. And we laughed and we cried and they just were with us. We were part of a small group at that time and our small group did the same thing. They just showed up for us. They'd send us notes, they'd write us, they'd bring food. They just were present in our lives. And it was one of the richest, most meaningful times of my life. I was so humbled because I'm like, I'm the pastor. I shouldn't I be doing this for you? I just feel utterly, utterly broken and exposed. That it's like, I'm my hurt, like it's just there, and I can't even pretend to have it together. And, and, and they're just stepping into the midst of it. And not one of them was like, dude, get your stuff together. This is embarrassing. Not one of them was like, listen, I got, I got stuff to do, so could you share quickly? And You know, we got movie tickets. Bethany and I had been used to being present in other people's lives, and we love it. I mean, that's why we do ministry, just the privilege of getting to be part of people's lives. But here people were doing that for us. And it was such an unbelievably humbling experience, but it was one that I will never forget for the rest of my life because they lived these truths out. 
They engaged with us. They were involved in our lives. They entered into our story and they sat in the hurt and in the pain and confusion with us. And they believed, right? They believed in me. They believed in us. They believed that God was at work in my life even when I couldn't see it. They didn't just believe in who I am. They believed in God's work in me. They believed in in who God is at times when I needed them to believe for me. That was one of the most transformational experiences of my life. God used them to help me better understand his faithfulness, to help me better understand what surrender looks like. I have said to them, and I will text them this afternoon after I share this, I understand what community is better because of them. I'm like, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. We need that. And as a church, we want to be that kind of transformed community that says, I'm gonna walk along with someone in the midst of their pain, in the midst of whatever they're going through because that is what God has done for me. God has moved towards me to rescue me. And so I can do that for someone. I can, I can walk with someone else, remind them of what's true, be present of them in the midst of the hurt. I'm gonna say that stronger, folks. It's not that even that we want as Calvary to be a transformed community. It's that we must be a transformed community. If we cannot be, we should close. Because that is the only reason we exist, to be transformed by the love of Jesus and to radiate that to those around us. There is no higher calling than that. There is no higher purpose than that. There is nothing else we can do to have any worth near to that. Because that's what truly changes. How about you? Are you part of the crowd? Are you part of community right now? And listen, it's okay if you're part of the crowd. We're glad you're here. If this is your first time here, you're like, dude, I'm part of the crowd. I just got here. Right? We want you to feel like being part of the crowd. The issue is not being part of the crowd. The issue is staying part of the crowd. Right? I get why the crowd is appealing. It's low commitment. Right? It's low obligation. It's low challenge but it's also low purpose, it's low meaning. Are you part of the crowd? Are you part of community? We want you to be part of community, right? And and we wanna remind you, we don't do this out of obligation, right? This isn't be part of community so God loves you more. That's not gonna happen. God can't love you more than he already does. God doesn't love us based on what we do. God loves us because of who he is. God loves us because of who he is. So we don't do this out of obligation. We don't do this out of a desire to earn God's favor or get in his good graces. We do this because of what God has already done for us on behalf, on our behalf through Jesus. We can live out to the community, this gospel community, because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. And so we want to invite you to be part of that, right? So, We're having a small group fair on February 19th. Jess Greaser and her team have spent so much time putting this together, building the small group infrastructure because we we want you to be part of a group, right? We want you to experience this. I mean, we're, no, I was gonna say we're inviting you, but we're not, like, we're not not inviting you to be part of a group, you know, but, but it's more than just inviting. We're really begging you 
to be part of a group. We're cajoling you to be part of a group. Listen, we would tap you on the arm for 15 straight minutes asking you the same question over and over again, like a kid asking you for dessert if that would get you in a small group. We want you to be part of that. Not for our sake, but for yours. To experience the richness of a Jesus-oriented community. To be known and know others. To walk together through life. We hunger for connection right now at this season. Culturally, we do. And we want to invite you a little bit deeper into relationship to pursue Jesus together with others, to be part of an engaged, a believing, but most importantly, a transformed community. A community that can engage when you won't, believe when you can't, and point you to the one who transforms you and makes you new. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Father God, we thank you for that that you invite us into that relationship, Lord. You invite us into community. Who are we, Lord, that you would care about us that much, but yet you do, and we are thankful for that, Lord. Would you help us to understand what obstacles we have, Lord, what barriers are in front of us, what things keep us from that, Lord, and would you begin to pick them apart piece by piece by piece that we might know the richness, the, the fulfillment that comes from living the way you've created us to live in relationship with you, pursuing you with others. Father, we thank you that you know best. We thank you for your grace as we try and figure that out. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.